Lord, we thank you for your deliverance in our life. We thank you for the price you paid Jesus on the cross that we could be called children of God. The lives that you delivered us from and uh, the things that you continue to deliver us from, Lord. And I pray that this isn't, this wouldn't be something um, that we just take for granted or uh, that we would get uh, bored of, but we would constantly consider your deliverance in our life, that it would bring us to a place of gratitude, that it would bring us to a place of passion, a passionate desire to seek you and walk with you uh, and live with you and for you. And I pray as we enter into this time in your word that you would fill us with your spirit, God, and you would help us understand uh, why you have us here right now to hear these specific words and your sovereignty. God, as, as you are a perfect father, you have something for each and every one of your children tonight, God. And I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. So uh, awake, uh, awaken our hearts, God. Awaken our minds. Uh, uh, awaken us spiritually that we can get everything that you desire us to get from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so last week we introed into Second Samuel chapter twenty-two, and what David is doing is he's singing this song of deliverance, just like this song that we were just singing before we entered into this teaching. And we see that this song is very similar to Psalm eighteen. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, I'll kind of catch you up to speed. Um, some suggest that. Uh, this is the, the very same song, just with some variations. Uh, some suggest that 2 Samuel chapter 22 is a psalm of David that the author of Samuel just decided to put in towards the end of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, but when you look into it further, there are variances between uh, Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22. And it actually appears that David is rewriting this song and making some changes. He's singing this song again again towards the end of his life because as we'll look at next week in second samuel chapter 23 we see some of the last words of david and this song is building up to the last words of david bottom line david he sings this song of deliverance of all the different times that god has delivered him in his life so this is a two-part teaching the title same as last week a song of deliverance, a song of deliverance, a song of deliverance, part two. So let's dive right into the text. We ended in Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 20. We'll pick up in verse 21. David says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. So David was far from perfect, and he's not claiming to be perfectly righteous. David was a man of faith. And we see that God, actually, when David fell, decided to forgive David of all his sins. David was ultimately declared righteous by faith. We see in 2 Samuel... Chapter 12, verse 13, after David committed the heinous sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and all the parties involved, when Nathan the prophet approached him and called him out and gave him that parable, David immediately repented. He recognized his sin and he gave it to the Lord. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
So David wasn't righteous because he met God's perfect standard. He was righteous because he was declared righteous by God through faith. This is how we're all declared righteous. We see it back during Abraham's time when God gave that promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness or as righteousness. And then Paul goes on in Romans and Galatians and some of the other epistles using Genesis 15, 6 to help us understand even back then and even now we're declared righteous not because of the fact that we meet this righteous standard that God laid out, but because we have faith in a perfectly righteous God. But David says, That the Lord, Yahweh, he rewarded me according to my righteousness. There are rewards that we receive by living a life of faith. David was a man of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We're saved by grace through faith, but we also see that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him by faith. There are rewards for diligently seeking God by faith. There are rewards from wholeheartedly following God. There are rewards both in this present life and there are rewards uh, in the future life in heaven. That's why Jesus urges us to lay up our treasures in heaven. How do we do that? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We diligently seek him by faith. Those rewards that we gain in this life aren't always material. They aren't always financial. More often than not, they're spiritual. But they can come in many different shapes and forms. The point is that God, he does reward those who diligently seek him. That's the type of man that David was. He was declared righteous by faith and God rewarded him because of his diligent pursuit of Yahweh. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 21, According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me or rewarded me once again. So David, uh, he's not claiming to be perfectly pure or perfectly clean. In one sense, he's claiming, because he compares his enemies to himself throughout this song. In one sense, he's claiming to be uh, pure in comparison to his enemies. But he's also claiming to be declared pure. Once again, we're declared pure or righteous through faith. However, there's a reality that as children of God... When we come to God and he declares us pure, he declares us righteous through faith. There's also the charge that he gives us to live lives of purity. David talks about this in the Psalms. In Psalm 24, in Psalm 24, he says this in verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, David's not saying that we have to live a perfect lifestyle to come into the presence of God. We can come into the presence of God just as we are. And as we come into the presence of God, what happens? He purifies us. We're purified when we're in the presence of God. However, when we're walking in impurity, when we're not living a righteous lifestyle, when we're not being holy as he is holy, what happens to us? We have this hesitancy 
to enter into the presence of God. We have this shame. We have this guilt. Sometimes we feel like we can't approach God the way that we are because we feel gross. We feel shame. We feel guilt. Uh, sometimes people don't come to church for this very reason. I feel gross. I'm, I'm in sin. I, I don't feel like I can face the body of Christ. I, I don't feel like I, I can face God. But God will accept us just the way we are. However, there is something to this gross feeling that we experience when we commit sin or we walk in impurity. I love the illustration that God gives Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 13. He tells Jeremiah to basically take his underwear uh, and go hide it by the Euphrates River, likely under a rock, and leave it there for a for some certain amount of time. He doesn't tell us how long. Uh, and then he says go back and, and grab the underwear and look at it. And, and he says it's a, it's a picture of the sin. The pride of Israel. What's that going to look like? It's going to look filthy. It's going to look disgusting. Uh, what if God would have told him to put it on? That would be pretty terrible, right? So I got a really embarrassing story for you. So this happened over the summer actually. Um, uh, I came up early on a Sunday morning to work out uh, at the gym over here before service, uh, and I forgot to bring a change of underwear, okay? So uh, when service was getting ready to start, I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? So I wore the underwear that I worked out in, and guess how I felt? Disgusting. I felt gross. I went through the whole messages. You guys didn't know. Hopefully nobody smelled me or anything like that. Uh, I went through all the messages, <laughs> Teaching with dirty underwear on that I just worked out in. I, I had no other options. I, I, I really did and I, I just had to put them on. And I was laughing in the morning. I thought about this story with in Jeremiah chapter 13 with this dirty loincloth and God gave me this perfect illustration. It's like, this is what we feel like when we're in sin. We feel impure. We feel gross. We feel uncomfortable. Now, The enemy wants to use that discomfort to lead you to a place of self-condemnation. So so that you think uh, you can't face God. You you can't uh, enter into the presence of God. You have no business coming into the presence of God. That's not true. God, on the other hand, will use that discomfort to what? To lead you to a place of repentance. To lead you to change your dirty underwear, right? He'll lead you to that place. I don't like this feeling, the conviction. It's gross. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I've never forgotten since then to bring an extra pair of underwear. In fact, for a long time, I just had an extra pair always in my, in my backpack. But this is the reality. The purity that God calls us to live in. There are benefits from it. If you look back in, shouldn't have flipped back yet. In uh, Psalm 24, David talks about this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord. So there is an indication that we receive blessings by living pure lifestyles, by, by walking in purity, there are blessings attached to it. There are future blessings attached to it, laying up treasures in heaven. But there are also present blessings that are attached to it. And, and one of those blessings we see in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or in other words, when we're living lives of purity, we can see God more clearly in our life. When I'm living uprightly, when I'm living a pure lifestyle, I'm going to see God moving in my life more. I'm going to see Him showing up in my life more. I'm going to hear Him speaking to me more clearly. When I start walking in impurity, what happens? I get the opposite of clarity. I get a fog. Uh, you guys, uh, all we've all driven uh, uh, up and down the mountain in the fog, right? It, it's hard to see, right? Picture this, right? You're, you're driving uh, up the mountain or down the mountain and you just got this fog in front of you and you can't see what? You can't see in front of you. You can't see five feet in front of you when it's thick. You can't see the cars in front of you. It, it's kind of scary. It's kind of terrifying. You don't know what's to come. What else does it do? It slows you down. You're 
trying to get from point A to point B, whether that's going down the hill or up the hill. And now you got to go slower because there's this fog in your way. Sometimes in our spiritual lives, we invite the fog. We invite the fog into our lives when we live impure lifestyles. We we can't get from point A to point B as rapidly. We're slowing ourselves down. We can't see God's vision for our lives as clearly. We're inviting a fog. There are present blessings attached to living a life of cleanliness. A life of purity. And this is what David is getting at in 2 Samuel chapter 22. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me or rewarded me. He goes on in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 22 to say, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not, and have not wickedly departed from the Lord. Now, he says he kept the ways of the Lord, but he didn't keep God's way perfectly. He wasn't perfectly obedient. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He's a deceiver. He's done so many things wrong in his life, but yet he's able to say, I have kept the ways of the Lord. Why? Because when he fell short, he always turned back to God. Every time he messed up, he always knew where to turn. He knew he could turn back to his heavenly father. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says this, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. Even a righteous man is going to fall seven times. Even a righteous man is going to continue to mess up in their lives. But guess what? The righteous man gets back up. Why? Because they have the faith in their God that their God is able to pick them back up and put them back on their feet. He says, I I never wickedly departed from the Lord. Even though I fell, I didn't walk away from the Lord. I, I stuck with the Lord. See, spiritual success, it's not found by living a perfect lifestyle. It's found by never giving up on a perfect God. That's spiritual success, that I never give up on the Lord my God. This is the type of man that David was. His priority, regardless of what happened, regardless of the sin that he committed, regardless of the obstacles that that he faced, he was committed to stand by Yahweh's side through thick and thin. And this has to be our priority as well. No matter what, I know where to turn no matter what. I'm sticking by my heavenly father. The text goes on to say, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 23. For all his judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. Though David broke the law, he didn't depart from the law. He, he broke the law, but he didn't walk away from it completely. He didn't depart from it. He says... For all his judgments were before me. He purposed to put the law before him in heart and in mind. In Psalm chapter 1, let's look there real quick. In Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist writes, we'll look at verse 1 to get us a little bit of context. In Psalm 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates, uh, and in his law, he meditates day and night. This is what it means to always have the word of God before you. You meditate on it day and night. You chew on it. You constantly think about it. You don't depart from it. You filter your life through it. The word of God is on my mind all the time. That's what he's getting at. I never departed from it. I was always considering it. Though I had lapses in judgment and I made some brutal mistakes, I always considered the word of God. 
We're called to be people that keep the word of God in the forefront of our minds, in the forefront of our hearts, because the moment we depart from it, the moment we forget about it, the moment we neglect it is the moment that we're bound to fall. David, he fell, but he never departed from the word of God called to abide in the word. In other words, to to remain in the word. That's a continuous action. Abiding in the word isn't just going to happen. Abiding in the word, it takes effort. It takes energy. It takes time. It it, it, it takes really uh, spending that quality time with the Lord, whether it be in the mornings or the afternoons or the nighttime, whatever the case may be. Called to abide in the word, remain in it. This is a continuous thing. And guess what? As we abide in the word, the word abides in us. And what we abide in will inevitably come out of us. In the way that we speak, in the way that we live, in the things that we do across the board. It says his judgments were before me. He didn't depart from the law of the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 22 Verse 24, I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Blameless in the Hebrew is this word uh, tamim. It's T-A-M-I-M. And it means to be complete or whole. David, once again, is not claiming to be sinless. He's claiming to have, he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. That's what he's claiming. Uh, I've completely followed the Lord, not perfectly, but completely. See, God, he's not searching for perfect people. If God was searching for perfect people, he'd never find anyone. God won't find a perfect person other than his son, Jesus Christ. He's searching for people who will wholeheartedly follow him. That, that's what he's searching for. He's searching for men and women after his own heart, despite their imperfections. This is the type of man that David was. And this is what he means by saying, I was blameless before him. I wholeheartedly followed him. I kept myself from my iniquity. Uh, I purposed to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand. When I did fall into sin, uh, I turned to the Lord and I turned from my sin. And we see from that moment in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when David gets corrected. Never again do we see another record of him committing murder or adultery. He kept himself from his iniquity. He recognized the error of his ways and he purposed not to fall into those specific sins again. Now he makes some other mistakes, absolutely. But not those mistakes specifically. 2 Samuel chapter 22 Verse 25, therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. That's crucial. He says my cleanness in his eyes. It's not about how I view my clean, clean cleanliness or my uncleanliness. It's about how God views my cleanness. It's how God sees me. It's how God sees you. And how does God see you? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Jesus, he, he, he paid the price for our sins. He paid the price for our impurity. He, he bore the wrath of God so that we could be declared perfectly righteous in the sight of the Father. So when the Father sees me, he doesn't see uncleanliness. He sees perfection not because of my perfection but because of the lord's perfection he became sin and in that moment we were declared righteous when we put our faith in him he continues on in second samuel chapter 22 verse 26 with the merciful you will show yourself merciful With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. It's point number one. God delivers us because he's merciful. God delivers us because he's merciful. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. 
in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, when God proclaims the name of the Lord to Moses, he proclaims his character, right? And it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth-keeping mercy for thousands. But the first two words that God gives Moses in that specific text is that He's merciful and He's gracious. He has mercy because He is merciful. He doesn't just perform acts of mercy because he feels like performing acts of mercy. He performs acts of mercy because he's, he is merciful and he can't deny himself. In other words, he can't be unmerciful. It's who he is. It's part of his being. It's part of his name. It's part of his character. So he bestows mercy on his children. But David says... That this mercy was a two-way street. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. See, David recognized the mercy of God in his life. And because he recognized that God had so much mercy on his life, he bestowed mercy on other people. We see this with Saul, right? He had two chances to kill King Saul. And what did he do? He, He let him go. He had mercy on Saul because David knew the mercy that he needed. We see Shammai in 2 Samuel chapter 16, the guy that was cursing David, who was a descendant of Saul, throwing rocks and stones at him and his men. Abishai said, let's behead him. David says, no, maybe this is from the Lord. The point is, David, he had mercy on that man. And Jesus, he gives us the same charge. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If we want mercy, we gotta give mercy. If we aren't forgiving of other people and the wretched things that they've done to us in our life, I know we've all experienced some terrible things in our life that people have done horrible things to us. If we can't find it in our hearts to forgive those people and have mercy on those people, then there's a disconnect between our hearts, our minds, and what the Bible teaches about mercy. Not only that, there's a disconnect between our understanding of the mercy that we've received from the Lord. Because we're called to forgive others as we've been forgiven. Jesus gives us a really scary parable with the unmerciful servant, right? He was forgiven of an unsurmountable, an unpayable debt. It'd be like billions of dollars. He ain't paying that off in a lifetime. With his master, he forgives the servant. He clears the debt. You don't owe me anything anymore. And then the unmerciful servant, what does he do? He goes to the next guy that owes him like not a small percentage of the amount that he owed. And he says, no, you got to pay me. He couldn't pay him, so he locked him up in prison. The master comes back to that unmerciful servant. He says, because you didn't forgive him, I'm not going to forgive you. So we see this. there's this direct correlation between the mercy that we receive and the mercy that we give. David is saying what he's experienced in his life is that in a way, at least, God responds to us On the basis of how we respond to other people. Doesn't mean we'll always get what we deserve. That's why there's mercy and that's why there's grace. But you better believe that God's looking at how we treat other people. And if we're not being forgiving, then God, He sees that. He's taking account of it. David recognized the mercy of God in his life. And because of that, he showed mercy to other people. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 28. He says, you will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. That's point number two. God delivers the humble and humbles the proud. God delivers the humble and humbles the proud. God saves those who are humble enough to cry out to him for salvation. God can't save someone that doesn't recognize their need to be saved. He saves those who are humble enough to ask him for salvation, to ask him to deliver them. In James chapter 4, verse 6, 
In James 4, 6, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. He's in opposition to the proud. Now, this isn't just uh, uh, the proud unbelievers. This is applies to proud believers as well. God resists proud believers. In other words, when we're walking in pride, we're bringing separation between us and our relationship with God. We're doing damage to our relationship with God. We're putting a barrier up, a wall up between us and God. He resists the proud. But it's not only God that resists the proud. People resist the proud, right? Who in here loves a very prideful, arrogant person that always talks about themselves, right? We all love that, right? No, right? It's it's in our nature to resist pride. We don't like when people are always boasting about themselves, talking about themselves. They're real arrogant. They think they're the best person that ever lived. They're good in this and they're good in that. We resist that, right? See, pride, it doesn't just do damage to our relationship with God. It does damage to our relationship with other people. Uh, Pride brings damage to our relationship with other people. Couple examples. The prideful husband that'll never admit when he's wrong. You know this one, right? Nah. You know somebody like this. They're always right. They can never be wrong. They, they have perfect opinions all the time. And their opinion is the one that counts. And, and it's like the wife can never get a word in. She can never win an argument because husband's always right. Or the wife that in her pride won't allow. The husband to be the spiritual leader. She feels like she has to control the husband or control the family. She's not willing to encourage him and and build him up and, and give him that opportunity to lead the family. And there are countless illustrations and examples that we could talk about. But the reality of it is. Is that pride it will bring destruction into your relationships. It will bring destruction into your relationship with God. It will bring destruction into your relationship with other people. It will bring destruction to ministry opportunities. It will bring destruction to various opportunities that God wants you to have. It will bring destruction into our lives across the board. So David, he sees how God responds to the humble and how he responds to the proud. David was a man that chose to humble himself. And he says here, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 29. For you are you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. God brought light into David's life when he was in darkness. This is point number three. God delivers us from the darkness by his light. God delivers us from darkness by his light. God is our light and he illuminates our path. He shows us the way out of darkness. You see this throughout the Bible. In Exodus, remember the Israelites, when it was dark outside, what did they have? God was in the pillar of fire guiding them through the darkness. In the same way, Jesus being the light of the world, he wants to guide us in this dark world. He wants to guide us out of our very own darkness. How does he do this? Well, he can do it in many ways. One of the primary ways that the light of the world guides us is through the lamp of his word. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, The word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. If you find yourself in a season of darkness, whether you're there now or you face this in the future, if we find ourselves in that season of darkness, we need to get back to the word. Why? Because it's a lamp into our feet and our light into our path. The light of the world will show us the way through the light of his word. Uh, he'll show us to get out of that pit. He'll show us how to get out of that season of darkness. This is what David experienced. But I love how he says this. Look back at the text, verse 29. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. David knows that the only darkness, uh, the darkness isn't just in the world, it's in him. He has his own darkness to deal with. God shined the light on David's darkness. After the sin that David committed with Bathsheba and the uh, the whole Uriah uh, incident, 
Nine months went by while David was still living in darkness. Remember, he covered this thing up. He made sure that that few people knew about what he did, uh, what he did with Bathsheba and how he had Uriah killed. Nine months went by. How do we know that? Because a child was born uh, right during this time period that Nathan confronted David. David was in darkness for this whole time period until what? God shined the light on it. God, God brought this whole thing to light. He, he revealed this thing. He exposed this thing. And this is what God does in our life. If we're not willing to bring our darkness to the surface and deal with it, then God he says, I got to bring it to the surface. If you're going to let nine months go by and not tell anybody about this, if you're going to let years go by and not tell anybody about this because I love you, I, I, I got to bring it to the surface. I, I got to expose it. I got to shine light on it. Why? Because I'm the light of the world. In James 1.17, in James 1.17, we see this reference to God, the Father, being the Father of lights. And it says here in James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now look at this. He says in the presence of God, there aren't even any shadows. Like, think about how bright the sun is, right? Even if it's noon, or the sun's at its brightest, it's at its peak. You stand out in the middle of the sun, and what are you going to see? You're going to see your shadow. In the presence of God, there aren't even any shadows. Complete absence of darkness. He's basically shining from every angle all at once. What he's saying is in my presence, I don't want there to be darkness. I'm going to shine the light on your darkness. Why? So that you can overcome this darkness. So that you don't walk in it anymore. You don't live in it anymore. I'm the light of the world and I call you to be children of light, he says. And How does he bring our darkness to light? Well, he can't do it through circumstances. He can't do it through prayer. He can't do it through many different ways, but... One of the main ways that God chooses to bring the darkness in our life to light is through the light of his word. You know, the times you're sitting there reading in the morning and then that verse sticks out. You're like, oh, my gosh, this thing I'm struggling with, this area of my life, it's in the dark. And all of a sudden, God just exposed it to the light. Now it's on the surface. Now it's got to be dealt with. God uses the truth of his word to expose the darkness in our life. See, the truth, the truth is like the sun. It's not going to go away. You can hide from it, block yourself from it, from it, pretend it isn't there, but the truth will always come out. It's always going to come out. The sun's always going to rise until the end of time. The truth, it's always going to come out eventually, one way or another. David experienced this in his own life. God brought all his darkness to the surface. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 30. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. Now, I don't know how high this wall is that David's talking about, but he's using illustrations. By the power of God, I'm able to overcome obstacles in this life. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. In Ephesians 6, 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Uh, Our strength is in the Lord, and when our strength is in the Lord, He can give us the ability to overcome all kinds of things. He can give us the ability to overcome spiritual warfare. He can give us the ability to overcome physical sickness. He can give us the ability to to physically endure trying circumstances. Uh, There was this one time when... Um, when I was fasting, uh, it was like the second day of a fast and, um, I was running, (laughs) I was running a pretty long distance and I, I got to like mile five or six and then I was like, I need to quit. I'm going to quit. And I started praying to God because this wasn't like a, I'm trying to challenge myself physically. This was a spiritual thing. Okay. uh, Don't ask me to explain. 
Um, but anyways, at about mile five or six, I started cr- like praying to the Lord, like empower me, God. Like I was just trying to, you know, p- pull these things from the Lord and uh, and grow my relationship with him. And and literally, as soon as I started asking the Lord to empower me physically, like the Holy Spirit came upon me and I got strengthened like crazy. I ran like five more miles. I ended up running 11 miles. It was crazy. I'd never experienced anything like that. The point is just like David saying here by the power of God, we're able to do some wild things that we would never be able to do without the power of God. He says, I can run against a troop. I can jump over walls. Now, this isn't just physical. This can be spiritual. This can be emotional. God can give us the power to overcome things that we would never be able to overcome in our flesh. He continues, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. He says God's way is perfect. Man's way is not perfect. In Proverbs 14, 12, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Or in other translations, destructions. In our pride, sometimes we think we know the right way to go. We know the right decision to make in our lives. And sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, this sounds like a pretty good decision, so I'm just going to roll with it. I'm just going to go with it. We never ask God. Our way is not always the right way. Our way is imperfect. God's way is perfect. Only his way is perfect. So if his way is perfect and my way is not perfect, maybe I should ask him what his way is, what his will is for my life. Which way do you want me to go, Lord? Because think about it. God, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the obstacles that we're going to face in the future. He knows what's to come. He knows the way that we need to walk in this life to set us up for success. But sometimes in our pride, we think, no, God, I'm going to go this way. I know everything you're doing is telling me to go this way, but I'm going to go this way. It leads to destruction, it leads to death, it leads to doom and gloom. David, there were times where he went his own way. And he had to find out the hard way. That way led to destruction. Only God's way leads to to life and fulfillment and contentment. And he says here, I love this one, verse 31. The word of the Lord is proven. God proved his word to David time and time again. David knew that God was faithful to fulfill everything that he told him he was going to do. Now, remember, there were things that God told David that he was going to do long after David was dead, uh, like the Davidic covenant and bringing the Messiah, which we'll talk about later. But, but David knew because God came through in the present promises that he was going to be faithful to fulfill the future promises. He, he says the word of the Lord is proven. Word of God proves itself over and over again as you look at archaeology or history or philosophy or science or mathematics, whatever route you want to take it, the Word of God proves itself over and over and over again. No book on the face of this earth invites more critique and criticism than the Bible. Why? Because there are so many details in there, specifically pertaining to prophecies, when they were given, when certain things were hap- would happen. You look at this. In the Bible, God essentially says, I, I-, I invite you to challenge it. I invite you to test it. I, I invite you to try to prove it wrong. Because guess what? In your efforts to prove it wrong... The Bible's going to prove you wrong every single time. The Bible proves itself over and over and over again. You look at the prophecies fulfilled. There is no book like it on the face of the earth. God predicted the exact world empires that would come on the scene. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans all in order. 
He predicted Alexander the Great coming on the scene. He, he predicted of, uh, the fact that all these different nations would be destroyed. He predicted how they were going to be destroyed. He predicted the fact that, that the, the king who took out Tyre would build a land bridge to get to the island of Tyre and destroy it. And then Alexander the Great does it. He, he, he calls Cyrus by name in Isaiah 44 and 45 and says this guy that isn't even alive yet. He hasn't even been born. This guy by name, this king of Persia, Cyrus, who are parents, his parents are going to name him Cyrus. This guy is going to be the guy that sends the Israelites back to build the Jerusalem, to build the temple once it's destroyed. The temple wasn't even destroyed yet. And God knew all these things. He said all these things. The word of God is proven. It, it proves itself over and over and over again. Nobody's proven this book wrong. They tried and they failed. And many of them that really try, they end up recognizing that it's true and they accept the Lord. This is the word of the Lord is proven. But I think one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true is when you look at the lives of the countless people that the Bible has changed. So the Bible isn't just a history book. It's not just a prophecy book. It's a living book. That changes lives. And when you look at the lives that this book has changed, my life, your life, all the people we know whose life this book has changed, it's hard to argue against that. What changed? I don't know. I started praying. I started, I accepted the Lord in my life. I started reading the Bible and things just started radically changing. That's what happened. That's really what happened. It's proof that the Bible is the word of God. It proves itself over and over and over again. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 32. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? In other words, he's claiming that God is exclusively God. And there is no other God. Allah is not God. Buddha is not God. Muhammad's not God. Krishna is not God. The 330 million gods the Hindu worship, Hindus worship, they're not gods. God is God alone. He's the only God. He's not just the just God in the fact that he is the Lord, the creator, he says, and who is a rock except our God. He's a reliable God. Remember how many times David got betrayed by his own family, by his friends. David got betrayed so badly over and over and over and over again. And then at the end of the life, his life, he gets betrayed when he's on his deathbed. He gets betrayed by one of his best friends and his son. It's wild. Betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. David learned that the only person he can truly count on is the Lord, his rock. That's it. He put his trust in him and him alone. He continues, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 33. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. David recognized that. His kingdom wasn't built on David's strength, but Yahweh's muscle. It was built on Yahweh's strength. And David leaned on Yahweh's strength. And by leaning on Yahweh's strength, he also recognized that Yahweh was making a way for him. He says, he makes my way perfect. When I'm perfectly following his way, I, I recognize that he's perfectly laid my path. He's setting me up for success. It says in verse 34, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. In other words, God is setting David up for victory. He makes my hands to make war. God sets us up for victory in this life. He uses the present to prepare us for battles in the future. The things that God is doing in your life right now is to prepare you for something that you're going to inevitably face in the future. He's preparing our hands for war, not physical war, but spiritual war. He's teaching us vital lessons in, lessons in the present so that we can overcome battles in the future. 
That's why we got to take heed to the word and take heed to the lessons and absorb it all and really stay in tune to the still small voice and listen to what God's trying to teach us and not just let the lessons go in one ear and out the other. Because if we do that, when we get to the next battle, we're going to get smoked. We're going to be wiped out. Because God was trying to prepare us for war and we forgot that we're in a spiritual battle. We didn't take heed to the lessons that he was teaching us in the present. So we're not going to have victory in the future. Now we're promised eternal victory. But there is a reality that we can face defeat in this life. If we don't recognize that he's teaching us. He's teaching my hands to make war. 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 36. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. He attributes salvation to the Lord. And we'll do this in 2 Samuel chapter 20 through 3 as well. But I love how he says here, your gentleness has made me great. God builds us up with what? His gentleness, his loving kindness. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. See, God the Father, He's a perfect Father. He's not an overly critical Father. He's not a judgmental Father. He's not an absent Father. He's not an apathetic Father. He's a perfect Father draws us in with loving kindness. He builds us up with gentleness. Why? What's he trying to do? Just what he was trying to do with David. He's trying to make us great. He said, by your gentleness, you made me great. But by his loving kindness, by his gentleness, he's trying to make his children great. He's trying to transform us into the image of greatness. Into the image of Jesus Christ. This is his goal for each and every one of his believers. And how does he accomplish this? He draws us in with loving kindness. With his gentle hands. He forms us. He shapes us. He molds us into the image of his greatness. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 37. You enlarge my path under me. So my feet do not slip. He he says, God, you're taking care of my walk. In Jude, verse 24, it says, He is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep us from tripping up. God is able to keep us from falling. He's able to prevent us from falling. So if we fall, it's not on God, it's on us. Why? Because we didn't listen to God. God's trying to keep us from stumbling But we end up stumbling when we get off the path that he's laid for us. When we stop listening, when we stop tuning in. He says, I know you're trying to set me up so my feet don't slip. When we slip, it's not on God. It's on us for not listening to God. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 38. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. So ultimately, uh, David is recounting all the times that God gave him victory over his enemies, the, the Philistines and the Malachites and all these different people groups that David had to face. God gave him victory over the enemies, just as God wants to give us victory over the enemy. He continues, verse 42, they looked... Speaking of his enemies, when he says they, they looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. God's favor was on David, but God's favor was not on David's enemies. Why did God not love them? No, he loves all his creation. But David was God's chosen king. He's a son of God. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. And because these enemies were against the king, 
They were against the Father. Same holds true to those who are against the Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those who are enemies of the Son are enemies of the Father. That's why nobody can say, well, I believe in God, but I don't know about this Jesus guy. If they don't believe the Son, then they don't get the Father. Jesus makes that very clear throughout his ministry. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 44. You have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. Look back at verse 44. We'll break this down a little bit. He says, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. God not only delivered David from the external battles with everything that was going on with the Philistines and the Amalekites and all these different people groups that surrounded Israel. He delivered them from the internal battle, the strivings or the quarrels or the problems among his people. Because we see during David's kingdom, there's just as much of an emphasis on the internal struggles as there are in the external struggles, we just went through a huge section on this. A lot of the problems uh, with Israel were the was the division between one another, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. David says, you delivered me from the strivings of my people. You delivered me from these internal issues I had to deal with. See, as a people, as the family of God. There are internal issues. We don't have just have a battle out there. Sometimes there's a battle in here. We're called to be unified. But sadly, there is often division. And sometimes, in David's case, he had to be the mediator with some of these quarrels. Nevertheless, God, he helped him overcome these strivings. He helped him give, by giving him righteous judgments and dealing with some of these internal problems. He says, you have kept me, verse 44, as the head of the nations. David knew that the throne was God's to give and not David's to take. He says, you kept me. You kept me as the head of the nations. Though David's throne was challenged many times, God always saw fit to preserve his king and put him back on the throne. Now, he says head of the nations, which helps us understand that a lot of this song is actually prophetic. He's speaking of Christ because David was really uh, the head of Israel. Jesus will be the head of the nations. And he continues on with this prophetic statement. He says, a people I have not known shall serve me. Prophetically alluding to Jesus' rule and reign over the Gentiles. Jesus will be king of all tribes, tongues, and nations. This is prophesied everywhere throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would not just be the king of the Jews, but the king of all nations. I'll point you to one text in Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, verse 11. He says, yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, pointing to the king who was to come, Jesus Christ. We see later on Philippians 2, 10 to 11 uh, says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So David speaking to the Lord, but this is. A prophetic statement. There's a lot of prophecy here in Second Samuel 22. We can't get into all of it. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 47. He says, "The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me." You have delivered me from the violent men. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. David continues to bless the Lord and he exalts his name 
The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted. The rock of my salvation. See, this is what David's life was all about. David's life was all about exalting the name of the Lord. He didn't purpose to make a name for himself. He recognized, he told God when God gave him the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, who am I and what is my household? Like, who am I? I'm I'm a nobody. He still saw himself as the little shepherd boy. He didn't purpose to make a name for himself. He purposed to make God's name great. This was the focus of his entire life. What's the focus of your life? If you had to sum it up, what do you think your primary focus is right now in your life? Is it to make financial ends meet? Is it to retire? Is it to end your days in a comfortable setting? Is it to make a name for yourself? Is it to do anything other than exalt the name of Christ? And I really want us to evaluate this and really think about it. If I had to sum up my purpose in a week, what is my primary focus? Do I do everything as unto the Lord? Can I say, or could somebody else say by looking at my life, man, that is a person who purposes to exalt the name of Yahweh every chance they get. Or is that a person that seems to be focused on the things of this world? Is that a purpose person that seems to be focused on making a name for themselves? Is that a person that's so focused on finances and retirement and all these different things all the time that I don't really see them exalting the name of Yahweh? I don't hear them exalting the name of the Lord. See, David, he used everything in his life as an avenue to exalt the name of God. And because David exalted the name of God, God exalted David. David didn't just wait till he became king to exalt the name of God. He didn't wait till he had a platform. He was exalting the name of God when he was tending his father's sheep. This was his lifestyle. This is what it was all about for David. I want to make God's name great. Not just for the Israelites so that they know how great God is, but also for the Gentiles, he says. Therefore, I will give thanks, verse 50, to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. He wants everyone to know how great God is. How great his grace is, how great his love is, how great his name is. This is what he was set out to do. In his life. And he accomplished it. The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is where we'll close. Verse 51. He is the tower of salvation to his king. And shows mercy to his anointed. To David and his descendants forevermore. Points to the Davidic covenant. Fourth and final point. God promises eternal deliverance. God promises eternal deliverance. So he points back to the Davidic covenant. Why? Because he recognized this was more than God just saying, yeah, you're going to have a lineage of kings. He knew that God was saying that the Messiah, the king of kings, would come through his lineage. He knew God was saying that there would be, because he says it, there would be a king that comes through his line that would rule and reign forever. And through this king, all humanity that put their faith in his name will experience eternal deliverance. For God's children, he promises that there's going to come a time where we are delivered from everything. That there will be no more tears, that there will be no more sin, that there will be no more sorrow, that there will be no more conflict, that there will be no more death. That he's going to deliver us from everything. There's going to be no more obstacles. We're going to be in the perfect presence of God forever. Regardless of what you're facing in this life. Maybe you're going through a rough season or you've gone through a rough year or a rough decade. There's been obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. You've got to remember that God promises us eternal deliverance. These obstacles can only last so long. They can only last so long. Once this life is up, for God's children, we get to experience deliverance from every single obstacle forevermore. 
And this is what David is praising God for. Not just for his past experiences of deliverance. Not just for his present experiences of deliverance. But for the future experience of deliverance. To David and his descendants forevermore. And this is why he praises God. And we should do the same. Yes, praise God for everything that he delivered you from. From the lifestyle that you used to live. From the obstacles that you faced in the past. For for the obstacles that you're facing in the present. But the eternal deliverance that he offers us. That's offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If I don't know what to praise God for. This is something worth praising him for. There's going to come a time where we're at perfect peace. No more enemies. No more conflict. No more nothing. Eternally delivered. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our deliverer, God. And you desire to deliver your children in the present, yes. From the various obstacles and trials that we face. And we know that sometimes you deliver us from the fire and sometimes you deliver us through the fire. God, but we know that there's going to come a time where we're delivered from it all because of the promise that you made to David and the fulfillment of that promise and the coming of Jesus Christ, your son. God, and we thank you so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins so that we could experience you now in the present but also deliverance in the future from everything that we face in this world. Lord, I pray that we would be people that praise you, that we would be people that exalt your name. God, if there are areas in our life where we look at and we say, man, that really isn't exalting the name of Yahweh, that habit or or that lifestyle or those things that I say, the way that I speak, or the way that I interact with people. Uh, I'm not really exalting the name of Yahweh, God. Uh, If there are those areas in our hearts and our life, I pray that you would bring correction. I pray that we would be people that are focused above all else to to exalt your name, God. As your name is lifted high, Lord, you will draw people to yourself. So I pray that you would use us to lift your name on high. In Jesus' name, amen.